Hello and welcome to 10 by 9 where 9 people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. I'm Paul Dorn and this is the 10 by 9 podcast. The wonderful Padraig Otuma and I started 10 by 9 in September 2011 in the Black Box in Belfast and we love it. Today's podcast is a bit of a miscellany, three stories from three events. So I concluded that her strange and bizarre name must be because she was really, really posh. There was no mistaking the next entrant into the waiting room. The striking thing about him was his huge forehead and dark sunken eyes. The skull had arrived. I thought to myself, I'm a fairy, a full-time gay fairy. (laughs) But I said, university lecturer. Okay, let's get stuck in, and in June, I got to host a 10 by 9 with Ulster University and their LGBT staff forum for stories on the theme, belonging. You might have heard some of them on a previous podcast. Well, here's another one, and it's from first-timer Anthea Irwin. One day, when I was about seven, my big brother asked me what I was. I didn't know. He gave me two options to help me along. 50-50, I thought, how hard can it be? I swirled the two words round in my head and said them both a few times to myself quietly to see which one slipped off my tongue the best. I said my answer. I got it wrong. Jeff was not impressed. I didn't know what all the fuss was about. I didn't want to separate myself from anybody. It just never occurred to me that all the wee girls in my country wouldn't have felt like the absolute bee's knees in their white Lady Diana blouse and their rara skirt with red and blue piping heading off to watch the bands, like I did. And the first time I came across that other language was at one of my dancing festivals. Yeah, no, I was never built to be a ballerina. I was a pretty mean topper, though, all the way until I was 11, with the cups to prove it. So anyway, there was this girl I was always up against in the ballet classes in the festival, And it fascinated me to look at her name in the program. Seenin. Seenin. S-E-A-N-I-N. With a funny wee mark on the A and the I. I'd never seen that name before in my life. Seenin had the most amazing tutus you have ever seen in your life. With loads of chiffon. And one of them even had white feathers on it. She looked like somebody out of the Royal Ballet. And I heard that her and her sister had a dance room with mirrors and a bar and everything in their own house. So I concluded that her strange and bizarre name must be because she was really, really posh. As I got a bit older, I saw the Irish language a wee bit more often. The street signs on part of my bus journey down the town had Irish on them. It was the streets below the bridge. The bit that I knew never to walk through, but it was my favorite part of the route. I loved looking at those street signs and trying to work out which bit of the Irish went with which bit of the English. I loved languages, and this one came from here. I wondered why I never got to learn it at school. When I came to think about it, I learned hardly anything about Ireland at school. The odd ancient myth or Yeats poem in English but absolutely nothing in history. I concluded that they must not wanted us to know the right way of it. 
Anyway, so I loved reading the street signs, but I did think it was a bit random to be suddenly translating something into Irish that was originally in English, since all the people living there spoke English anyway, or at least as far as I knew they did. It was the same with people that put their surnames into Irish so that suddenly they had like 25 letters in them and they were impossible for anyone who didn't have Irish to say. I mean, were they doing it for badness? I didn't get it. But then, one night at the Lyric Theatre, I realised that I really hadn't got it. My lovely English teacher, Mrs Patterson, who trod her own path and gave us more to think about regardless of whether it was in the curriculum or not, took us to see this play by this playwright called Brian Freel, Translations. It devastated me. These poor people getting the names of the places they knew and loved trampled all over by people who didn't understand them. The new names had no meaning, nothing about the type of land they lived on or the places there their ancestors came from or the jobs there their ancestors did. The new names just sounded like the old ones and only vaguely. Like, I thought it was like trying to put the square peg of English into the round hole of Irish. And it made me dead sad that it was my people that were the ones who took their story away from them. I'd have to continue to admire Irish through a window, I thought. It really wasn't my language to speak. Fast forward 30 years or so, and I was back on that same road, passing by those same streets. This time, I wasn't separated from the streets by the glass of my bus window. I was walking down them on my way to learn how to pronounce their names and learn what they meant. I'd returned home after two decades away studying and working in England and Scotland. <clears throat> the day I left, I crossed a threshold and allowed myself to say words I had never said before. Hi, I'm Anthea, and I'm Irish. <laughs> now, returning, I crossed another threshold and allowed myself to learn the language I now knew had once been everybody's tongue. I could have played it safe and gone to the new Irish classes on the Newton Arch Road. But why do that when this place was closer? And somehow it felt very apt that I was going to classes below the bridge in a place called the bridge, Androchid. As the weeks went on, I felt more at myself than maybe I ever had. I was slowly starting to speak the language that saying I'm at myself came from and being after doing something. And says I this and says she that, as my old neighbor Mrs. May used to say. I started looking at English place names for Irish places through my Irish language lens and working out what the round hole had been that the square peg was pushed into. I looked for the red in the landscape when somewhere ended with Derg because Derg is red. I knew that cows once grazed in places with bow in them. I noticed I was going uphill to places with Ard in their name because that means high. I felt a wee bit out of it when everybody was putting their surnames into Irish and mine didn't go. My teacher went and asked everybody in the place how to do it, bless her, and she got me a phonetic spelling. But I let it go. Why pull a square peg into a round hole? A few sets of evening classes later, I went to a full immersion Gaeltacht course. Well, I was in heaven. 
Well, I was in North Donegal, which might as well be, <laughs> and which my wife Kim and I had long since adopted as our second home. Some evenings, my course mates and I, we sat quietly in a circle singing the old songs of Donegal. I sang along with Balgeen Elamy, Phelan's wee boat, and felt the waves rise and fall as we sang. I didn't understand all the descriptions of Phelan's wee boat and what it was doing, but I felt them. I loved that the weeness of the boat was in there in the word, bad gene. I remembered back to the girl with the feathered tutu at the ballet festival, Shawnine, <laughs> and smiled at how her name placed her in a community. There was a big Sean somewhere in her history, probably more than one. At the end of the course, we had a Kayleigh Moore, a big social, and then the cops came out. My name was called. I had won one. To be honest, I'm still not entirely sure what I won it for. I only understood a fraction of what the presenter said. But even if it was for the most enthusiastic class member rather than anything to do with skill, I would take that. It wasn't the first time I'd ever won anything, but it meant the most. Then Charlie, a friend, Cara, I'd made on the course, came over to me and said, this is for you. I reckoned you'd never have had one. It was a Schlitter. Don't worry if you don't have Irish, that's just a hurling ball. It was a Schlitter of his. I put the Schlitter in my cup. It fitted perfectly and it's been there ever since. The cup now sits proudly on a shelf in our wee place in Donegal with the Schlitter in it and my wee non-Irish name on it. <laughs> a new part of the picture of who I am. Not one or the other or both even, just me. Got him, I'll get Anthea. That was wonderful. And if you think you have a story for 10 by 9 then get in touch through the submissions page on our website, which is 10 by 9com We are always, always looking for storytellers. Or you can contact us through our social media channels, that is Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Even if it's only a smidgen of an idea, we'll help you bring it to fruition. Okay, next up, and I've been diving into the archives again. And here's a story from August 2019, when the theme was road trip. Here's Bob Salisbury. It's dead easy. Get a license, drive around the town for ten minutes, and then you'll be legal. My friend had stumbled on some steps, broken his ankle, and needed his car 200 miles away in Newcastle for the summer. I was happy to help, but needed to pass the driving test. What does it entail, I asked. Oh, he was vague about the details. Oh, you just drive around a bit, do a stop, and that's it. It all sounded straightforward and I was confident that the test would not trouble me. The year was 1960, my 18th birthday had just passed, and I'd grown up with old vans and an assortment of motor vehicles for years. The practicality of handling gears, clutches and accelerators had long been mastered, and I was convinced I could drive well enough to do what was necessary. The provincial arrived. There was no waiting list, and the test was scheduled to take place four days later. My friend, now lugging an impressive-looking plastic ast, decided we should drive the test route a couple of times in order to get the feel of his ancient vehicle. 
It was a model Y Ford 8, inherited from his grandfather and by modern standards was tiny. The two doors opened forward and there was just enough room for driver and passenger to sit side by side. The left-hand seat rocked slightly because part of the plywood floor was breaking. There were no seat belts, primitive indicators looking like illuminated carrots popped out from the slots in the side of the car. The steering was heavy and the brakes snatched violently to one side. I was actually looking forward to taking the test, but one thing bothered me. A friend of mine had recently failed his test and was very disillusioned with the whole process. It was all down to the skull, he said. Doesn't pass anyone, young, however good you are. I thought if you had the skills and are safe, they have to pass you. You've either got it or you haven't. Well, in theory, yes. This bloke has a personal ambition to keep the pass rate down, and he does. Why do you call him the skull? Well, you'll see if you get him. The test centre was a drab place with tired posters and a bored woman behind the glass. She didn't bother to look up when I entered. Sit there, she said, and carried on with whatever it was she was doing. Three other people occupied the benches, all reading. Morning, I said to the woman nearest to me. You here to take the test? She nodded. I'm panicking about stopping distances and was just looking them up in the code. The code? I asked. (laughs) She gave me an odd look and left as her name was called. There was no mistaking the next entrant into the waiting room. He was tall and thin, slightly stooped, but the striking thing about him was his huge forehead and dark sunken eyes. His skin seemed far too tight for his face and stretched thinly across his head and cheekbones. Small round glasses perched on the end of his nose and he looked at them over the people, at the people in the room. The skull had arrived. Salisbury? That's me, I said, jumping to my feet. He disappeared through the door without once looking in my direction. Read that number plate, he said, pointing to a car ten or so yards away. What? I said, puzzled by his request. Read that number plate. Why? I asked. (laughs) So I know you can see it clearly, he replied in an irritated manner. I was 18, playing two rugby games a week and was as fit as a flea. At that distance, I could have told him what kind of screws were holding the plate. (laughs) If I couldn't read that, I shouldn't be driving. Just read the plate, he said sharply. (laughs) KSO 4582, I replied, thinking this bloke was already living up to his reputation. We stopped near the Ford 8 and he stared at it like there was an unpleasant smell under his nose. Is this the test vehicle? He asked, placing a decided emphasis on the word this. The old plates give the game away, I replied cheerfully. The front seat rocks a bit, so mind your head. He glared at me, opened the door and squeezed his lanky shape into the tiny seat. Proceed down the road until I tell you to turn left. Right-o, I said, happy to be underway. We motored towards the town centre. Turn left at the next junction. Out went the electronic carrot. We entered a quiet street where he told me to stop. Now, would you change direction using forward and reverse gears? 
Well, he had me with that one. <laughs> How do you turn a car around using just the gears? Uh, At times on the farm, we'd practice handbrake turns on muddy fields by hauling up the lever and spinning the rear of the vehicle around. It was possible, but on a residential street with other cars about, it'd be dodgy to say the least. Forward and reverse gears, I said aloud. Am I actually allowed to use the steering wheel? His head spun round. You must take this test seriously, Mr. Salisbury. I am, but you asked me to turn the car around using forward and reverse gears. Of course you can use the steering wheel, he snapped. Do a three-point turn. A three-point turn? His face reddened and he said through clenched teeth, How would you turn the car around if you wanted to go back up this street? I explained what I would do and he said, that is what is known as a three-point turn. Now would you do it? Oh, right-o, I replied cheerfully. As we drove along, I got the distinct feeling that whatever I did during the test, the skull had set his heart on failing me, and I began to be resolved to that outcome. On one straight stretch, I saw him take a quick look behind and lift his clipboard in both hands. Emergency stop coming up, I thought. Get ready. As the board started to come down, I hit the pedal. The car veered violently to the right as the brakes snatched. The seat rocked forward and the skull banged his head on the roof. <laughs> he cursed under his breath and said, Drive! Right-o! <laughs> the rest of the trip went off without incident and back at the test centre he opened a small book at a marked page. What is the stopping distance at 40 miles an hour? And before I could answer, answer he added, putting unnecessary emphasis on every word, if you were driving at 40 miles an hour and you had to brake suddenly, how far do you think it would take you to stop? Depends, I replied. <laughs> Depends on what? Depends on whether the road is wet, icy, or just normal. If the road was normal, how far would it take you to stop? Normal. 40 miles an hour. About that cherry tree. And I pointed to a pink flowering specimen which was growing along the street in the pavement. He made a note. Where would you not park? I racked my brain to think of places I would not leave the car and started to list them. Front of someone's gate, uh, brow of a hill, uh, double yellow lines, uh, pedestrian crossing. I started to warm to my work and the list grew ever longer. <laughs> Blind band, bend, narrow humpback bridge, car park at the back of the dog and duck. <laughs> all right, all right, that's enough. Cutting off my flow. Why the car park at the back of the dog and duck? <laughs> Someone's always stealing cars from the back of the pub. There's broken glass everywhere. Only an idiot would leave their motor there. Are you familiar with this book? He showed me the highway code. No. <laughs> Have you seen this leaflet called 
how to pass your driving test. No. Your driving is safe and competent, but you need to read these before you can pass. Righto, I said. Three days later, I retook the test and set off for Newcastle. Uh, thanks so much, Bob. I hope you'll be back with us at the 10 by 9 mic soon. People have often asked us why we don't charge an entrance fee for 10 by 9 but it's simple, really. We want to be accessible to everyone, for one thing, but also we always felt our storytellers shouldn't feel their stories had to reach a commercial threshold. They shouldn't be thinking, oh, these people have paid £5, and my story isn't worth that, so we removed that barrier. And that is why 10 by 9 is always free and always will be. And anyway, I like free stuff. But if you want to support us, you can give via Patreon or PayPal, links at our website. We're so thankful to everyone who has, including our new patron, Michael Gregory. Thanks so much, Michael. Another way to help out, you could give us a rating, takes a second, or a kindly review, takes maybe 20 seconds, wherever you get your podcasts. Patrick and I would love you forever. Mostly though, we're just grateful to have you listening. Okay, on to our third and final story, and he's a 10 by 9 regular, the king of the props. It's Richard O'Leary. It was 1999, the end of the last century, in the old times, or what I call the Dark Ages. But it was also the eve of the new millennium. Something was about to happen to me. Something new. Something physical. Something adult. No, not that. (laughs) It was my partner turned to me and said, Why don't we buy our own place? Mm, Buy our own place? Prior to that, we lived in rented accommodation. But I'd got this new job at Queen's University. So we began our search in Belfast for our own place. Now, finding a home in Belfast in 1999 was problematic. Still can be, if you are a mixed couple, a mixed Catholic-Protestant couple. I was the Catholic one, in case you hadn't guessed. (laughs) The one with the Irish surname O'Leary and the southern accent. You can't get more southern than Cork. In the old times in Belfast, when some locals encountered this O'Leary from Cork, they reacted as though I came from another world. At the beginning of our search for our own place, I took out my map of Belfast. This map, it shows all the built-up spaces in the colour brown and all the public parks and sports fields in the colour green. But what would have been more useful in a map in Belfast in those days, it would have been a map that showed the Protestant Unionist areas in the colour orange (laughs) and the predominantly Catholic Nationalist areas in the colour green. At least the map showed the railway line. Now, I don't drive, so I was looking for a house in an area adjacent to a train stop, or as the locals call it, a train stack. I traced my finger along this map, following the railway line, to Lambeg. (laughs) Yes, that Lambeg, as in the Lambeg drum. 
my partner, the Protestant one, took me to view a lovely semi-detached house, 10 minutes walk from the train stop at Lambeg. <laughs> this was the time of the Orange Order protests at Drum Cree. And the lamppost near that lovely house in Lambeg, they were decked out in loyalist flags. We were chatting to the seller, a helpful woman, and I could sense that when she heard my Lilton Cork accent and about me using the train stop, all she was thinking, Lambeg is, well, just a wee bit too Protestant for you. <laughs> then I saw an advert for a lovely semi-detached house in Finnehy, the western end of Finnehy, on the far side of the railway bridge, the Catholic side. But my partner, being an East Belfast Protestant, queried, did we really have to live in an area which was so overwhelmingly Catholic? So we kept on looking. House hunting in Northern Ireland in those days was a bit like the experience of Goldilocks and the three bears. Either too hot or too cold, too Protestant or too Catholic. <laughs> it seemed that in Northern Ireland there was never a place for us which was just right. In the meantime, before we could find, buy a house, we first had to get approval for a bank loan. I told you this was an adult story. <laughs> so I called into the Halifax Bank, and the bank official on her computer brought up the mortgage application form. <laughs> this printed form, it reads, Halifax Bank. 14th of December, 1999, confidential questionnaire. I gave the bank official my name, and she typed in Richard O'Leary. And then she asked me, can you tell me the name of the joint applicant? I took a deep breath and said in a quiet voice, Mervyn Kingston. I told you he was a Protestant. I watched feeling very self-conscious as a bank official typed in the letters M or Mr. Reverend Kingston. We then proceeded to the second question on the questionnaire when the bank official asked me, are you married? I quickly replied, no, I'm single. Remember, this was the dark ages before same-sex couples in Northern Ireland had marriage or even civil partnership. She then asked, and what about Mr. Kingston's marital status? <laughs> I replied, he's also single. <laughs> the bank official typed in the word single. The bank official then appointed a question on the form that said, if not married and joint applicants, please state relationship. Your relationship is, she inquired. I paused. What reply could I give? I wondered that if she heard my answer, she might pull up a face with moral disapproval. I gritted my teeth, looked her in the eye, and stated, friends. And she typed in the word F-R-I-E-N-D-S in capital letters on this form. <laughs> the next question was occupation. I thought to myself, I'm a fairy, a full-time gay fairy. 
what I said, university lecturer. <laughs> she typed in lecturer. <laughs> and so we pair of friends, fairy friends, submitted the application to the Halifax Bank. After we left the bank, I closed my eyes and made a wish. Sorry, this isn't me praying to the Virgin Mary. This is me making a wish. I made a wish that my application for a joint mortgage would be approved. And we waited. And we waited. And eventually the Halifax Bank sent a letter. And I noticed that the envelope, on the outside of the envelope, it was addressed to Mr. and Mr. It was the first official letter we'd received with our joint names. Our joint mortgage had been approved. Whew. Next task was to find that elusive house. I closed my eyes and made a wish. I made a wish that we could find a house on a street that a couple of fairies, a couple of mixed fairies, <laughs> could live peacefully and snuggle in private without being harassed. And that was when I saw an advert for this house. A fairy cottage <laughs> within walking distance of a train stop. We made an appointment to view it. There were no flags on the street. The owner occupiers were two women, a pair of women in their 50s, Miss and Miss. They said they were sisters. They really were sisters. <laughs> And Presbyterian. <laughs> we put in an offer on this house, which they declined. We increased our offer, and the Presbyterian sisters accepted it. On the 16th of March, 2000, Mervyn and I moved into this house. And to our new home, we added our own fairy touches. Mervyn got a decorative ceramic plate which we displayed on mantelpiece and on the plate he had printed our names our private intimate names on the top there's mine Snugglepuss <laughs> and on the bottom there's his monster don't ask <laughs> and in the centre of the plate there were three words we had printed in French. And the first word is C-H-E-Z, which in French is che, which means place. And the second word is de, which means of. And the third word is F-E-E-S, which is fay, which is the French word for fairies. <laughs> che de fay, the place of the fairies, our place where we lived happily ever after. Oh, Richard, roll a laugh. Great to have you back at the 10 by 9 mic. Come again soon.
And that is it for this podcast. You can keep in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Also email, which is story at 10by9.com, or via our website, which is 10by9.com. Keep an eye out for upcoming events and themes. And please, if you can, tell as many people as you can about the podcast. It is the best way to get noticed and maybe a wee review or a reading. Thanks to the lovely people at The Black Box, our wonderful audience and all our storytellers, but especially Ante Erwin, Bob Salisbury and Richard O'Leary. I'm Paul Dorn and I'll be back with another podcast in a few weeks after a well-deserved holiday. But for now, bye-bye.